0: Please remain standing, and let's take out our Bibles once again, and now turn to the Gospel of Mark, to chapter 11. We will read the first 11 verses this morning that we'll be looking at as we continue working our way through Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 11, let us hear again God's Word. Let us give heed to it as we hear it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. As we get ready to look at this passage this morning, let's pray. Join me as we do. Father, well, as we have just sang, Lord, grant us grace, Almighty Lord, to read and mark your holy word, its truths with meekness to receive, and by its holy precepts live. We pray that as we read and, and look at the events recorded in this passage this morning, we pray that you would um, instruct us, that you would encourage us, that you would uh, bless us, Lord, as we, as we hear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, for the past several weeks, as we have gathered together on the Lord's Day around God's Word, and for the last few chapters of Mark's Gospel that we've been working through, we have been mentioning uh, about every Sunday that Jesus has been moving purposefully according to his father's will and redemptive plan he has been moving toward Jerusalem that that is the the end of this journey it's a fact that as we've seen that Jesus has announced to his disciples on three separate occasions well in our passage this morning they finally arrive the Outworking of the plan of God to provide eternal redemption for those whom he has given to his son and the fulfillment of the promise of the gospel all the way back to that very first gospel promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. All of these grand plans, all of the things that we've seen in the Old Testament, all of the prophecies. Uh, All pointing forward, uh, all of these plans come down now to the next seven days, beginning with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Jesus knows, and the disciples have been told, what Jesus is facing during what begins this day, uh, what we call the Passion Week though, of course, the details are are as of yet hidden from the view of the disciples. And as we look at this, as we get started here, you might feel a little bit of of deja vu as it was just three months ago that we looked at this same event uh, on Palm Sunday. So some of this will be review for you. But you will certainly recall that this last mile of their journey is anything but normal. Anything but pedestrian. We're going to see as we work through this this morning that at every corner, every aspect of this, that there is something amazing going on. Something that is pointing to the fact that Jesus is not just one of the myriad of pilgrims who are coming down the road and coming up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. As he comes to the the ancient city of David, that he comes as the central figure of history. We saw last week that as Jesus and the disciples left Jericho, Remember that they were met by or were called to by this blind man who called out Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And we said last week that this was the sort of the turning of a corner in the proclamation of the identity of Jesus. Now openly proclaiming him, this man was, as the Son of David, as the Messiah. And that's who he is. He is the Messiah. He is the son of David. And so, this is not just the entry of another pilgrim to Jerusalem that we're looking at today. This is not just the entry of a visiting rabbi into Jerusalem. This is the entry of the Messiah into the city of David. This is what we call it a triumphal entry. And Mark picks up on it here in his record. He says, When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So remember that they had left Jericho and they had come up that long incline, that long road uh, to this area, to the area of Bethphage and Bethany and the Mount of Olives. Bethany is a small village town, on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. Uh, Bethany, remember, was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom Jesus rose from the dead. The town of Bethphage, uh, it's a, house, a name that means house of unripe figs, uh, it's just a short walk northwest of Bethany. Um, at or very near the summit of the Mount of Olives. And from there, as you descend down, going west, you descend toward Jerusalem's eastern wall, down into the what's called the Kidron Valley, right there next to the walls, and then back up the hill and into the city of Jerusalem. That's the path that Jesus and this crowd will be taking today. But first... Jesus pulls two disciples aside. We're not told which two. But he pulls them aside and sends them on an important errand. And that is where we get into the text today. It's in verse 2 here that he he sent two of the disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. So from the very outset, there's something different here. There's something special about Jesus' actions here, something different even for him. Uh, we never read anywhere in the Gospels other than here of Jesus uh, riding on an animal anywhere in the Gospels, nor is disciples. It appears that they walked everywhere they went, which was very common in that day. Most people did that. They, they had walked apparently more than 100 miles from where they started up in Caesarea Philippi all the way down, and, and so they certainly could have walked the last mile into Jerusalem. Also, pilgrims that come to Jerusalem for a feast if they came long distances and if they rode animals, the way they would do it is they would ride the the animal for most of the journey and then they would complete their journey. In fact, according to the Mishnah, they were expected to complete the last bit of their journey on foot, not on an animal. And so Jesus' decision not to especially when he was going to be surrounded by all of these other people who were walking, his decision to come in some other way is clearly a deliberate decision by Jesus with, obviously, a purpose. And it doesn't really end there. In this task that Jesus sends the disciples on, he is again demonstrating his, that he is in control of all of this. He's in control of this journey and every aspect on it, of it. A truth that will continue to be shown throughout the week. In fact, a, a truth that will be shown all the way up until the moment of his death on Friday when the Bible says that he dismissed his spirit. Jesus is nowhere in the Gospels ever presented as simply a victim of circumstance or as someone simply carried along by events but is always shown as someone in control of his destiny, which is the case since, as we've talked about so often, Jesus has come especially to accomplish the, the will, the work that his father has given him to do. Nothing in Jesus' ministry, we've seen this all along, we'll continue to see it, nothing in Jesus' ministry is left to chance, nothing is haphazard, nothing is uncertain. But all of these things take place, including what we see this morning, take place and will take place, as Peter will say later, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And Jesus shows that here again in this Choosing that that he does of how he's going to complete his own pilgrimage into Jerusalem. And it's an amazing choice. He says to these these two disciples, He says, Go into the village in front of you, Uh, probably Bethphage is is the village that he's talking about. And he says, And immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied. Note the the specificity of of this instruction. He says you will find this colt tied up right as you enter the city. You're not going to have to look around for it. You're not going to have to go down the streets and look. Right as you go in, you're going to see a colt tied. Now what kind of colt would this be? Was it a horse? Well, Luke doesn't say. He just calls it a colt, which could be a horse or a donkey. Uh, Matthew does. Matthew records a little more detail. He says, he records Jesus' instruction uh, with more detail. He says, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. A colt, a a, a young male donkey in this case. Mark doesn't mention the, the mom or this other donkey that's tied. Just the colt, just the son is mentioned here. And then Jesus gives another detail about this, this donkey, this colt. He says, on which no one has ever sat. Now, is this something that, that they, the disciples, were expected to know? Or something to, that they should recognize? Probably not. Jesus is just saying that this young donkey that you will find, that it will be the case that it is a donkey on which no one has ever sat. And that's interesting. It's another... I think, one of a multitude of elements here, especially in conjunction with so much prophetic fulfillment that we're seeing, we're going to see in this passage. And and this works in with that. If we look at places in the Old Testament, um, such as Numbers, Numbers 19, Deuteronomy 21, uh, 1 Samuel 6, we see that that animals that were devoted to a sacred purpose, the purpose of God, were to be animals that were not only without defect, but they were animals that had not been yet put into ordinary use. They were pristine. And so that's the case here. This is a colt that has not been uh, ridden yet. And it fits with other things that happened in Jesus' life, I think at the beginning of his life and at the end of his life, even at the very beginning of his life, we see that Jesus was carried, that he was brought into this world by a virgin, a young woman who had not yet carried a child. And then at the end of Jesus' life, there's also a particular detail that we learn that Jesus was laid in a tomb that no one had yet laid in. And so here it's appropriate then that this animal that will bear Christ into the most important days of his life that it's an animal that is being set aside for a very holy task to carry the Lord into Jerusalem. And so it's appropriate that this donkey as well be set aside for this work and not to have been put to any other work not, in, not put to any other use as a, a conveyance and so he mentions here that it is one who that is not uh, no one has ever sat so Jesus says to the two disciples go find this donkey and when you find it he says untie it and bring it a rather bold instruction uh, perhaps more audacious than we might think because there, there were only a few people in, in Israel in the culture that had the prerogative to, to requisition someone else's animal. Uh, only a couple. One of those was a king. The king could do that. And here Jesus boldly does so. And in verse 3, he adds another instruction. He says, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. Now, it's interesting that that scholars are sort of divided on this, what's going on here. Some say that this is the result of a a prearranged agreement. And, And these are... These are conservative scholars, these aren't liberals, but they say that the text and the parallels in in Matthew and Luke and John seem to show that this may have been a a prearranged agreement and that the answer that Jesus gives to them to give was sort of a a code to the person to whom Jesus was going to borrow this donkey from, that this this is what has been arranged. But whether this is the result of a prearranged ag- as agreement or whether, as is absolutely reasonable, that Jesus simply knew, as he knows all things, what would happen and that this answer would satisfy the people who see the, the apostles untying this colt and wonder what's going on, that it would satisfy them and convince them that all is well. Whichever one of those is is right is not of of great importance here. Whichever is the case, though, verses 4 through 6 tell us that the disciples then go into the town, go to the village, and everything happens exactly as Jesus said it would. And they, after giving the answer that that they were told to give, they return to Jesus with the colt. The answer that they give, that the Lord has need of it, satisfies the people who have asked and they send the, the colt away with the disciples. They bring it back to Jesus and we read that they throw their cloaks on it. Their outer garments on this donkey is a sort of makeshift saddle. And Jesus climbs aboard the donkey and he sat on it, Mark says. Now the question may rise in your mind, why? Why go through any of this at all? Why not just walk the last mile into Jerusalem? It's downhill even. Why not just walk? Well, the answer to that is prophecy. Specifically, messianic prophecy. We have seen, as we've gone through Mark's gospel so far, we've seen the the misunderstanding of Jesus ministry that has been embraced certainly even by his disciples but also by others sort of more broadly around Jesus we've learned that that the Jews of this day saw the the promised messiah as primarily in their minds as they interpreted the the old testament that they saw the messiah as primarily a A political military leader who would come and would restore the nation of Israel by a physical restoration of that nation. To to guide the people to throw off the long endured oppression of the Jews under the people that they had served for so long. Back to the Babylonians and then the Medo-Persians and then the Greeks and now the Romans, uh, that, that the Jesus, the Messiah, would come and help to throw off that oppression and lead to the restored nation, to the restored throne of David. The prophet Zechariah, in chapter 9 of his prophecy, speaks of that. He describes the, the judgment of God on several of Israel's enemies a picture of the enemies of God more generally. But in Zechariah, he speaks of how God is going to to defeat them, to destroy them. And then in verse 9, he writes of a monumental blessing when God's chosen and anointed king over his people would himself come into Jerusalem would come to his people. He will come, the text says, righteous and having salvation. And he will come to cut off their enemies and to speak peace, to bring peace to the nations and to rule over all kingdoms, as well as covering the sin of his people through the blood of the covenant. And verse 9 in that prophecy of Zechariah 9 is especially important as it describes the coming of of the king to his people. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. And then he says this, Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Mark doesn't do it here, but Matthew and John both explicitly quote Zechariah 9.9 in their record of this entry into Jerusalem, noting that what Jesus did by getting the donkey and riding it into Jerusalem That doing that was specifically to fulfill, in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. That's what's going on here. He is the king of Israel in splendor and yet in humility and peace riding into the city. In splendor, as we'll see the reaction of the crowd, and yet in humility by the choice of a donkey on which to ride. Did Jesus know about this prophecy that day? Did he realize that by him riding into Jerusalem, not on a horse, not on the mount of a warrior, but on a donkey, that he was setting himself up as a fulfillment of this passage in Zechariah? Absolutely he did. As he came in peace to bring peace, Peace with God. But the use of a donkey, actually, as Jesus uses it to come into Jerusalem, it has even more of a prophetic hook, if you will, that takes us back earlier than the prophets, back to the book of Genesis, back to the patriarchs, back to the patriarch Jacob, also known as as Israel. In chapter 49 of, of Genesis, Jacob is getting ready to die. And he calls his 12 sons to him, those who will become the 12 tribes of Israel, the children of Israel. And as was the custom, he gathers them together to, to bless them. And in this case, to prophesy concerning them, concerning the fate of the the nations that will arise from them. And the typical process would be that the eldest, the firstborn, would receive the the primary blessing. In this case, the covenant blessing. But in chapter 49 of Genesis, as as Jacob begins to speak to his son, he begins with the eldest, Reuben, Reuben. But he speaks poorly of Reuben. And then he speaks to the the next two, Simeon and Levi. And he doesn't speak of blessing to them. He speaks poorly of them as well. And it's only when he comes to his fourth son, Judah, that Jacob speaks prophetically of the place of the tribe of Judah in a positive way. And of the important place that that line will occupy according to God's plan. As he speaks concerning Judah, he says this. He says that the scepter, you know, that, that rod that the king holds that, that signifies his rule, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from, bet- from between his feet, until... Tribute comes to him. The ESV says tribute comes to him. It's a very difficult to translate phrase. Some translations say until Shiloh comes or until the one comes to whom it is due. Um, he goes on and says, And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Speaking here of, of this place of rule over God's people belonging to Judah. Judah. Belonging to the descendant of Judah. For example, David was a descendant of Judah. And such as David's greater son, greatest son, Jesus of Nazareth. But then Jacob adds this in verse 49, and here's why we came here. As he speaks of Judah and the rule that Judah is going to have, that to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples, he goes on and says, Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. In the original writing there, that's a a picture of the, the prosperity under this king who would come. The the vines, the choice vines, what what use will those important things be put? Well, he's going to tie his donkey to those. Uh, And he's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Wine, which was so important to them, um, will, will not be so critical to hold on to. And the vines that bring it forth will be used to tie a donkey. But the fact that he speaks of a foal and a donkey's colt has to be in the mind of those who hear this. And it needs to be in our mind as well. And the image of a, of a donkey's colt tied just adds another layer here of, of or to the, the messianic character which this riding on a donkey, the, what the donkey bears here is Jesus chooses this animal on which to ride into Jerusalem. So both Genesis and Zechariah point to the fact that Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey while everybody else around him is walking, while he could have walked. All of this is highly significant. In fact, it is messianic. A messianic sign that Jesus is now voluntarily voluntarily taking to himself. And so, as I said, the two disciples go... Everything happens just as they they were told. They bring the donkey. Verse 7 tells us that in the absence of a saddle of any kind on this donkey, the disciples threw their own garments on to give a bit of comfort to Jesus as he sat on it and rode into Jerusalem. That's the colt. The second thing we're going to look at is the crowd. Because while the disciples have given their garments now for a saddle, the crowd now comes into play, and Mark tells us that they give their garments as a sort of makeshift red carpet for Jesus, as he, in what we might describe as humble pomp, rides into Jerusalem with the, with the flavor of all of this Old Testament messianic prophecy um, riding with him. We're told that, verse 8, that many spread their cloaks on the road that too has Old Testament precedent, royal precedent. Back in Second Kings and chapter 9, the coronation of Jehu as king of Israel, we read there that as he was anointed king, that in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Again, sort of elevating the king from the the common ground. Here they spread their cloaks on the ground. So Jesus can walk and his donkey can can walk on them. As well as, Mark says here, leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. It's interesting here that, that these branches in Mark's telling of the story here, the way he tells it, they're not singled out as anything In particular, just it's the word that's used for the kind of things, uh, branches, uh, vegetation, things that you might use to stuff a mattress with in that day. It's just not very specific. It's John in his gospel who gives the branches and the activities of the crowd a more exalted uh, flavor. They are specifically, as John records it, palm branches he's very specific about it and though this is interesting and though they are nowhere specifically said to have been waved by the people as is commonly thought but they're thrown on the ground uh, as mark has it here it was the practice of of waving palm branches um, as as joyful as a victorious celebration of thankfulness to god in regard to the, the festival of booths, the festival of tabernacles where that was done, and probably more a connection here, in an event that took place between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we don't have time to, to go into it a lot, but you know the name Judas Maccabeus and the, the Maccabees. In between there as, as the Maccabees had freed the people from the the tyranny of people like Antiochus Epiphanes, if you recognize that name. Uh, Judas Maccabeus was celebrated then with great praise as he came into the city with the waving of palm branches as he entered Jerusalem. And this was probably 100, maybe 150 years before Jesus, so this might have been more fresh in their minds. And this was part of the the formation, this waving of palm branches, was part of the formation of the, the Jewish understanding of the Messiah that we've talked about who was, who was to come and now had come and, and they gave him a misguided but an appropriate welcome. As he comes into town, they throw their, the, the clothes and the branches down on the ground. And in addition to their actions, the crowd greets Jesus with words. Cheers, to be precise. That's the third thing that we look at. And briefly here, the cheers. Verses 9 and 10. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. In a way, these words of the crowd help us to reinforce what we've talked about in regard to the actions that are going on. These are the words that would... Accompany the coming into town of the Messiah. First, though, Mark identifies those who were shouting as those who went before and those who followed. Two crowds. There are those who went before, that is, in front of Jesus. These would be the ones who followed him um, out of, of Jericho and up out of here, out of Bethany now. They are with him. And it says that there are those who, who followed So here's the picture. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, followed by the disciples, followed by the great crowd that has followed him from Jericho. I misspoke a moment ago. These are the ones who followed him. They had been following him. But now there's, oh, by the way, in that crowd that followed him, we know that there's a new member, don't we? That there's a man named Bartimaeus, formerly blind, who is now joining with him. And now joining in, certainly, in the shouts of the blessing to the kingdom of David. But there's also a crowd that John tells us that when they heard that Jesus was coming, that they had come out of the city, out of Jerusalem, to meet them. John 12, 12, he mentions that. And so the group coming out of Jerusalem, the group coming with Jesus out of Bethany, come together and rejoice at this man sitting on this donkey whom they proclaim to be the Messiah as they then go with him back into the city. That picture, too, is very typical of triumphant entries of earthly kings. After battle, after a war, the king would return in triumph with his entourage and the spoils of war, and the city would go out to meet him in that entourage, meet the king rejoicing with him, and then go back into the city that's what's happening here. Jesus is being treated also as a returning victorious warrior king. And as he approaches the city, the crowd begins a chant. They raise their voices till it becomes a great roar over the road. In fact, Luke 19.37 says that the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So much does the crowd Yell and, and cheer that the, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, Rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. Remember Jesus' answer? He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the moment for this, Jesus is saying. It'll be over soon, but for now, let them shout. And they do. Verse 9 says that those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna was originally, originally a prayer. It means save us now. But this word had over time moved from really being a prayer to being a shout of praise. Like the word hallelujah. It's a shout of joyful welcome here in the service of the Messiah of God who has come to his people. Words from, as we read this morning from Psalm 118, mixed with, with great shouts of welcome and of blessing to Christ as the son of David. Remember, Bartimaeus started that last week. He kicked off this chorus, and now I'm sure, as I said, he joined in with the crowd and they shouted together. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. See, that's Messiah talk. The crowd saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophecies of 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, and the promise of the servant of Yahweh from Isaiah 7, and all of the prophets, as well as the coming of the king as Zechariah had prophesied. And indeed he was. Though, as we've seen and we'll see again, the people had quite a different understanding of what that truly meant. Because Jesus came to inaugurate not a physical kingdom, not a physical restored Jewish nation. Jesus came to inaugurate a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, but which was over this world. He came to this world. He came to this city to bring in the kingdom of God and to open that kingdom to Jew and Gentile alike, to as many as who will call on his name. The true fulfillment of the promises to David and to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob through Jesus, who is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the ruler who was prophesied and now comes humbly riding on a donkey. As he prepares to humble himself more. As he prepares to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that brings us for this morning to the conclusion. This is very striking. I think, in Mark's record. Verse 10, we have the height of celebration and shouting and acclamation by the huge crowds accompanying Jesus to Jesus as the Messiah. Now in verse 11, nothing. The crowds have quieted. Apparently, they've left. Matthew lets us know that, that away from the crowds, there's a, there's a question. Who is this? What is this presence that has worked up so many? But now at the end of Mark's record here, and this really serves, as, as we'll see next week, as an introduction to the next part, it's quiet. Mark leaves uh, the crowds aside and tells us simply that the king, having arrived now in his capital city, begins the work of this singular week In history, with a tour. He begins, Mark says, with the temple. The word that's used here refers to the temple area. It appears that he's either alone or, at most, with with his 12 disciples. And for this visit, Mark says he just looks around. How is the temple fulfilling its divinely appointed mission? How is the temple being treated? How is it being used? How are the people revering this place, God's place? Jesus, Mark says, looked around at everything. And he has seen what he needs to see. Some action, Jesus thinks, is needed. And Jesus will take it. But Mark notes... As Peter, remember, relates to him, Mark notes, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus will do this all week, be in Jerusalem during the day, retiring to Bethany with the disciples each night until that one night when he goes only as far as a garden on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. That'll be Thursday night. So now, Jesus' hour has come. Things are set in motion. Things, beloved, that make for our redemption. Let us give him thanks for that. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that in your perfect, all-wise, all-gracious plan that you sent your son, And we thank you that your son set his face to go to Jerusalem knowing what faced him there and that he did it for us. For each one of us sitting here who names the name of Christ and trusts in him, Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day for us. And the things that will occur throughout the rest of this gospel, he did for us. We thank you, Lord, that you have sent the Messiah of God, the surety of the covenant, your servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he was faithful. Faithful in completely fulfilling all that you had given him to do and that we are the benefits of that. Help us to give thanks and rejoice in it always. Amen.